Luke 7, 1 through 10. You'll find that on page 863 if you're using a copy of the Church Bible. And as usual, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning as we look at God's Word together. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And before we look at this together, let me just briefly ask the Lord in a special way to bless the ministry of the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we lift up our voices to you collectively, and we ask you to meet our greatest needs this morning by sending out your word, by the proclamation of the gospel, and by the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We pray, our God, that you would most certainly accomplish your purposes as we know that you will, by sending out your word, we pray that you would make us attentive, that you would prepare every heart, that you would remove every distraction, that you would send your spirit to grant that illumination that we so desperately need, that we might see and hear the Son of God, and that we might trust in him, and that we might draw near to you through him. And so, Father in heaven, we do ask you to draw near to us and to help us as your word is proclaimed. We pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 7, beginning in verse 1, Jesus has just finished what we call the Sermon on the Plain here in Luke, giving his manifesto of the new creation and what it looks like to be a member of his kingdom and what it looks like to be one who has been transferred from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. And now Luke records for us these words. After he had finished all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued to him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and he was not far from the house. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes to another, come, and he comes to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Literally, he was astonished. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, 2017 has been quite an unusual year. I was scrolling back through those websites that show the greatest pictures of 2017, realizing um, how many catastrophes there were, how many disappointments, how many hardships how, how much turmoil there's been in 2017, both in America and throughout the world. Now, that's normal on one hand, and yet it felt like there was something extraordinary about this year and the challenges of this year. Anna at one point said to me, I'm not sure if it was when the shooter um, massacred those people in Las Vegas or 
whether it was when uh, the young man massacred those Christians in Texas, these things used to surprise me, and they don't seem to surprise us anymore that they're happening. Um, Maybe you've caught yourself saying at times, nothing surprises me anymore. I know I certainly have. Um, I think it's interesting to note that there are only two occasions when Jesus was ever astonished by things. There are only two occasions in the Bible when Jesus ever found anything surprising. One of those occasions happened to be when the people who saw his mighty works didn't believe in him, and the other occasion when Jesus was astonished and surprised at something was when the centurion in the account before us exercised the faith that he did in Jesus. They're the only two times that it could ever be said Jesus was surprised by something or astonished or in a sense, taken back by what was happening. And, you know, Luke has been tracing the ministry of Jesus for us, and he's been showing us quite astonishing things. He's been showing us the magnificence of the Savior. He's been showing us the one that could put his hands on a leper and heal him of his leprosy. He's been showing us the one that could do mighty works in casting out demons and healing demon-possessed individuals. He's showing us these mighty works and wonders, and then he has shown us the very astonishing words of Jesus. Uh, The Sermon on the Plain, no man ever spoke like this man spoke. No one ever taught like this man taught. Even those who deny the deity of Jesus, even those who, who strip the Bible of its supernaturalism in their unbelief, stand amazed at the teaching of Jesus. The most radical, liberal, and progressive thinkers of the world will say there was something astonishing about his teaching while neglecting everything else astonishing about Jesus. And yet here in this account, it is, yes, the astonishing Jesus and the astonishing Jesus doing yet another mighty kingdom power miracle. And yet there is something in this account in which the astonishment is happening on the part of Jesus at the great faith of the centurion. Now, this miracle is different than all the other miracles that we've seen so far because All the other miracles have been focused on the individual Jesus' healing, for instance. This miracle is more focused on the one asking Jesus to heal his servant than it is on Jesus healing the servant. The other unique thing about this account is that this is the first time that Jesus will ever heal someone from a distance. This is the first account where Jesus is not face-to-face with those that he heals, but that he will show his almighty power by healing through his powerful word, at a distance. It's one of the greatest of the accounts in the Gospels, and Luke is giving it to us this morning so that we will first take consideration of the centurion's exhibition of great faith, that we will seek to learn from his great faith, and then we will consider Jesus' response to the centurion's great faith. We'll notice that Luke is transitioning quite naturally. He says in verse 1, after he had finished all his sayings, in the hearing of the people... Uh, Luke wants you to know that Jesus' words and his actions go together, that there was power in his word, there is power in his deeds, there was power in his teaching, there is power in his mighty works, that everything Jesus does is full of power, full of significance, full of importance, and so having finished all of these sayings in in the hearing of the people, Luke tells us that Jesus entered Capernaum. Now, Capernaum will be called in scripture his town. It was the place where Jesus, for some time, 
took up abode. It's the place where he lived and he settled for a period of time. And notice that as he has come to settle in Capernaum, we are told that a centurion who had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, one who was very highly valued by him, sent elders of the Jews to Jesus because he had heard about Jesus. Now, the very first thing that we're told about uh, the exhibition of the faith of this man is that it is thrown against the background of the imminent tragedy that's about to happen. This man has a servant. He has a servant that we could presume was perhaps the chief of his other servants in his household, and this servant was dear to him. In the Greek, uh, it it gives the sense that the word that is used is the, the Greek word for precious. He was precious to this man. It's a beautiful word. It's a word that's often used about what the Savior is to us and what we are to the Savior. Precious. It's a word that's full of compassion. Uh, It shows that this Roman centurion had, uh, had a deep heartfelt love for those that God had placed under his care and for this one in particular. And this man, the Luke tells us in the text is that he had fallen severely sick. He was at the point of death. We don't know what the infirmity was, but they knew that it was hopeless. And the centurion felt as though he was going to lose this one that he loved, who was so dear to him. I think it's interesting. The next account we're going to see in Luke, we're going to consider Jesus raising the son of the widow of Nain from the dead. Um, and, and Luke is, in a very real sense, as a physician, highlighting the inevitability of death. Um, he is wanting us to consider the fact that death is going to come to all of us. He is wanting us to consider the fact that it will come sooner than later. And he is wanting us to consider the fact that it is irremediable. Uh, he wants us to understand that no one can deliver us from death apart from the Lord Jesus. He wants us to understand that we have no resources to conquer death. We may go to the doctor. We may get antibiotics. I am very thankful for antibiotics. Um, Carl Truman, he's a church historical prof at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. His students ask him all the time, Dr. Truman, when would you want to live in all of church history? And he says, right now, antibiotics. Why would I not want to live right now? And yet, death is inevitable. No antibiotics, no surgeries are going to deliver us from death. We are going to die. It is inevitable. Death is going to come, and it is going to come swiftly, and it is going to come unexpectedly, and it's going to come, and it's going to strike, and, it's, and it is an unconquerable foe. And this centurion, who's a man of power and authority, as we're going to see, a man of wealth, a man of provision, a man of intellect, a man of compassion, a man who has a lot going for him, can do nothing for this servant who's precious for him. Isn't that interesting? Luke is going to highlight that this centurion has social reputation, money, provision, power, authority, respect, and a charitable heart and life, and he can do nothing for the servant who is precious to him. And we are meant to feel the impossibility of conquering death and of ultimately helping those that we love. And we are meant to feel the frailty of our lives, the passing nature of it. Um, I was reminded this morning 
that uh, Samuel Davies, I think I mentioned this many years ago, Samuel Davies, the president of what is now Princeton University, uh, the first president, and then Jonathan Edwards after him, and then Jonathan Edwards Jr., the great philosopher and the son of Jonathan Edwards, all preached Jeremiah 29:18 uh, on New Year's, the year that they died. And the text is, this year you will die. And they all died that year. Um, they talked about the inevitability of death, and they died. It's going to happen. I don't want you to leave this place not getting that. It is going to happen. I want you to come face-to-face this morning with the fact that you are going to die and that there is no amount of preparation you can do to prepare for it other than trusting in Jesus. There's nothing you can do. No amount of uh, thinking, I've lived a good enough life, I've, I've done this, I've had a full life, I've accomplished these goals. There is nothing you can do to prepare for that in any way that will remove the sting of death, the curse of death, the fear of death, the reality of death, the irremediability of death, nothing. This man has a servant who is dying. And this man has heard about Jesus. Now, before I touch on that fact, I want to talk about the man himself. He is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He's an unlikely individual to have great faith. Um, he is a Roman, no doubt. They, they despised the Jews. Remember, the Romans were oppressing the Jews. The Roman army was that oppressive power that kept the Jews under watch and under, um, under government. And he is one of the chief army officers in the Roman army. He is a Roman. He is a very unlikely individual to exercise faith in Jesus. Uh, William Still, the great Scottish pastor and theologian reflecting on this, said, you know, we ought to look for great faith in unlikely people and in unlikely times and in unlikely places. Jesus is going to wonder at this man because he is a very unlikely candidate to be a man of great faith and to teach us this morning what it is that we need so much and what it looks like. And yet... We learn a lot about this man. We learn that this man, as I have already noted, had uh, great wealth, and he used that wealth in service of the covenant people. He had built a synagogue for the people of God. He had some sort of respect, perhaps. He had become a proselyte to the Jewish nation, a convert, and, and he, he had a respect for what we might deem at this time to be the true religion, and he, has, and he has demonstrated his respect for what uh, God had revealed in his word about the Jewish nation, the very people that he has sent to keep watch over, by, by using his resources to build them a place of worship. Now, um, that takes time to build things, especially in this world, especially a synagogue. This is not, well, I'll help this guy get this little thing over here. He builds a place of worship for the community himself, of his own means. He, he demonstrates his, his respect for the true religion and for the people of God by using his resources and his time patiently to provide a place for them to worship. Um, he, in that sense, shows even more of his compassionate heart, doesn't he, for a people who are oppressed. He, he is a very compassionate man by nature. He's a wealthy man. 
He is a religious man. He is a compassionate man. Um, he doesn't abuse his power. There's no sense in this passage that he is the sort of man that loves power and loves to lord it over other people in a sinful way. Um, how often people do that when they get a little tiny taste of power. He is a man that takes what God has given him, and he seems to be using it to the best of his ability. Now, what's interesting about that is um, that this man doesn't trust in any of those things. When he sends people to Jesus to ask them to have mercy and to heal his beloved servant. Um, He doesn't think of himself as good enough. Notice what Luke tells us. Um, In verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And they came to Jesus. They pleaded with him, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. He is one who built us a synagogue And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, there's something very interesting happening here. Here are a people that have benefited from this man's generosity and his compassion. And uh, they know that his servant's sick, and this man has heard about Jesus. He's heard about Jesus healing others. No doubt, Jesus has begun to gain popularity. He has both begun to gain uh, notoriety uh, for his miracles by way of uh, people trusting in him and believing in him and people opposing him. Uh, Both of those things have begun to be heightened. As Jesus grows in popularity, so does the, the division between those that trust him and those that oppose him. And the opposition has risen, and yet this man has heard And he, by God's grace, exercises faith. He doesn't know much about Jesus. We can't imagine that this man has been anywhere where he has seen a miracle. That's one of the striking things, by the way, here. He doesn't ask Jesus to come and show him a miracle. Um, In that sense, he's even more noble than Thomas at the end of John's gospel, who says, I won't believe until I see the print in his his hands and and put my hand in his side. And, And Jesus says, more blessed are those who have not seen. And yet believe. This man doesn't ask Jesus to come and do a miracle so that he can see it and believe in him. Um, He has everything against him. He has much of the Jewish nation against him. Um, Very interesting. He even has the unbelief of the elders that go to Jesus against him. Because they don't go for salvation. Very interesting, by the way. They will go for him but they won't go for themselves. Um, Notice, they go when he sends them, and they go on behalf of him. Notice verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. You get a sense that this man had told them to do that very thing. This man had said, go to him and plead with him. Plead with him to come and heal my servant. Um, This man is, in that sense, a demonstration of what it looks like to pray earnestly for others, which is such a desperate need for us to learn. 
This man, though he has no Christian upbringing, though he doesn't have the theological knowledge that we have, though he doesn't have a copy of the scriptures like we have, this man is a man of great faith, and he is a man who is going to Jesus and, in a sense, praying and pleading with Jesus on behalf of someone he cares about. And he's confident that Jesus can do it. Um, those Jews go and they say, he's worthy. It's very interesting. That is the, that's the natural inclination for us to um, deceive ourselves into thinking there are people that are deserving of the help of the Savior. Please don't miss this. Not one of us is deserving of the help of the Savior. Uh, there's a very wicked song by a songwriter I love so much. I always fast forward through this line. He says, I won't believe in Jesus till he believes in me. That's the sentiment of so many people in this world. That might be your sentiment. I'm worthy. I've done good. I've worked hard. This man has done good. He's worked hard. He's done very well for himself. This man is a very powerful man, wealthy man, respected man, revered man. These Jews come to Jesus. They say he's worthy. He, he built a synagogue for us. He built a place of worship. He used his own resources for us. This man is deserving of your help. And Jesus, as it were, goes uh, to test the man to see what this man is really like. And notice that the man must have heard that Jesus was on his way, and so he sends out friends. He now doesn't send people that are removed a bit from him, he sends those that are close to him, and he says, go and please tell him, don't even come to my house because I'm not worthy. Now, there's actually a juxtaposition of the words that Luke uses for worthy. The Jews use one word. They say he's worthy, he's deserving. And the man uses a very specific Greek word, and that is not good enough. He says to Jesus, I am not good enough for you to come under my roof. Just speak a word and my servant will be healed. This man is showing us that those who have saving faith come to Jesus saying, I'm not good enough when everybody around them falsely suggests that they are. Don't miss that. When everybody around you is saying, no, 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 no. You deserve this. You deserve better. And by way of implication, God should do this for you. Those who have saving faith come to the Savior and they say, I am not good enough. I am not good enough. Uh, that was Jacob's confession. The patriarch, uh, Abraham's grandson, he said to God, I am not worthy of the least of your mercies or of the kindness you have shown your servant. That's the confession of one who has faith in Jesus. I am not good enough. Um. We will never come to Jesus Christ for redemption, for salvation, and for eternal life until we realize we're not good enough. No one who has ever thought they were deserving ever went to Jesus. This man is not beating himself up masochistically and saying, oh, no, 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 I'm not worthy. Stay away. He's going. 
He's going to the Savior. He's exercising faith. And as he does, that beautiful harmony of conviction of sin, of a sense of unworthiness and undeserving, and an exercise of trust and calling on the Lord are coming together perfectly. Charles Spurgeon says, if these two things could just meet together, a thorough sense of sin and an immovable belief in the power of Christ to grapple with sin and to overcome it, surely the kingdom of heaven would then come near to us in power and in truth. And then it would be again said, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Isn't that amazing? Those two things need to come together. A sense of our sinfulness, a sense of our unworthiness, a sense of the power of Christ, a sense of the willingness of Christ, a sense of the ability of the Savior to do whatever with a word. When those two things come together, salvation comes to us, the kingdom comes near us, God's power is demonstrated as we see from this passage. Um, you know, it's very interesting, the exhibition of this man's faith manifests itself in, in such a wonderful way in even what's happening in the actions of this man. I don't know, there are layers here. I don't know if you've ever seen this. This miracle in particular have, has so many layers, absolutely unbelievable. Remember the first time I started to see the layers and just being astonished. Okay, this man is acting out the very confession he's making about Jesus and using the very actions that he's acting out to show Jesus that he believes that Jesus is able to heal death itself. So here's a man in authority. He has servants under him. He has religious leaders doing what he says. He's got friends that do what he says. He's a man with layers of authority. He knows that he has that authority. He can say to somebody, go. And he goes, I can't even get my kids to get the remote. You laugh. You know what I mean. I'm like, go get dad's bag out of the car. No, you get it. <laughs> um, if you don't laugh, you're in denial. Um, <laughs> this man knows the authority he has. He knows he can say go, and he goes, come, and he comes, do this, and they do it. And he demonstrates it by first sending the elders to Jesus, and they go, and they do it, they go, and they plead with him to come and help this man. And then he hears that Jesus is coming, and he, and he sends a second tier, now friends, I mean, if I can't get my kids to obey, I'm not getting my friends to do anything. This guy says to his friends, go to him and tell him, I'm not worthy. Don't come under my roof. I'm unworthy to have you in my home. Just speak a word. And they go and they say it to the Savior. And what he's saying to the Savior, notice he says, I also, notice verse 8, I too am a man. Set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. One of the greatest things I've ever read in all of church history was a meditation on this passage by a Scottish minister named John McLaren. McLaren uh, said about this passage and about Jesus here and what the soldier had against him. I mean, Jesus didn't look like a great king. He had nowhere to lay his head. He had, no, he had no home. 
He had no money. We're going to see that in forthcoming passages. He, women supported his ministry. He was poor. Um, he doesn't have soldiers. He doesn't have, he doesn't have any outward display of authority or power or significance. John McLaren said about Jesus here, he had no guard of soldiers, no magnificent retinue of servants, but the centurion who had both acknowledged that health and sickness, life and death, took orders from him. That's... That's the faith of the centurion. He's saying to Jesus in demonstrating his authority, he's saying, I too am a man under authority, and all you have to do is speak a word, and sickness and health and life and death take orders from you. That's what he's saying. Um, That's saving faith. That's saving faith. I want you to have saving faith. I want to have saving faith. Saving faith is nothing less than acknowledging that Jesus Christ has power over your death, is the resurrection from the dead, is the resurrection and the life, who by a word speaks and heals the centurion servant and will on the last day call the dead by his voice from death to life. And it's going to him. And it's saying, I'm not worthy. Just speak a word. And, and more than that, it's saying, I'm not worthy, but you are worthy. And you take my unworthiness on yourself at the cross. It's saying, I'm not worthy, but you are worthy in all of your infinite perfections as the Son of God holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners, the one who knew no sin made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, the one who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness, the one who was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement that brought us peace upon him, the one by whose stripes we are healed, our unworthiness placed on the worthy Savior, his worthiness covering us by his righteousness imputed to us. That's, that's where all of this is moving. Saving faith in Jesus says, I am unworthy, he is worthy, he will take my unworthiness. He has the power to redeem me and to rescue me from death. Now, there is so much more. Uh, this man is acknowledging that there is authority in Jesus's word. Isn't that interesting? The very thing that men hate the most about Jesus is his word because they know that his word demands repentance and allegiance and turning from sin to him. And that's the very thing this man is acknowledging Jesus can use for redemption. Uh, Herman Ritterboss, great theologian, Uh, after saying that Jesus' adversaries sought to entangle him in his word because they saw his authority and his dangerous character, said believers are not merely amazed at Jesus' knowledge or wisdom or ability in speaking, but at bottom they respond to the powers and the authority revealed in his word. That's what saving faith does. It responds to the authority and the power of Jesus' word. Jesus will say, 
He will say, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. He will say, the time is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He says, I am the good shepherd. I call my sheep by name and they follow me. They respond to his authority. His people respond to his power. His people respond in humility and brokenness. His people respond in faith. And they say, Lord, I know that you are able to do all that I need you to do for me. Um, But secondly, and perhaps as importantly, we notice Jesus's uh, response. Now, very interesting, I noted already that those elders of the Jews who went to Jesus, they didn't go for themselves. Isn't that interesting? They didn't go and say, we know that you're the Savior, and we need you to be our Savior, and will you come and help our friend? They go to Jesus and they say, this man is worthy for you to help him. Will you come and heal his servant? John Calvin, when he reflects on that, he says hypocrisy is so subtle that we would be fine with putting Jesus out there for other people while the hypocrite would not take Jesus for himself or herself. Isn't that interesting? The hypocrite will put Jesus out there for others. Yeah, it's great. They need Jesus. Good for them. Their life is better now. They got Jesus. That's essentially what these Jews are doing. Yeah, we want this guy's servant to be healed, so we'll go to Jesus for him. And there was much more unbelief in Israel, much, much more unbelief surrounding everything Jesus was doing and teaching, unbelief everywhere. Um, Jesus was shocked by unbelief in the midst of the mighty powers that God was working in him and through him. And he was also amazed and he also wondered at this man's faith. Notice that Luke says in verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and he turned to the crowd and he said, I tell you, I have not even in Israel found such faith. Now, that says to me that we ought to pay very close attention to the faith of the centurion. That if among the people to whom the Redeemer was sent, the people who had thousands of years of God's word and his covenants and his worship and his promises and his sacraments and the Passover lamb and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrificial system and everything else God gave them to point to Jesus, they had all of that for thousands of years and, and Jesus comes to his own and his own do not receive him, but among his own there is a foreign Gentile who exercises this enormous faith in Jesus against all odds in the face of unbelief, in the face of a thousand voices telling him he's worthy, telling him Jesus is not who he says he is, in the face of all that, this man believes. And Jesus is drawing our attention to the fact we should say, I want to have that sort of faith. Jesus is saying that sort of faith is rare. He's astonished at the faith of the centurion. He's saying... This sort of faith is rare. Now, I want to ask you this morning, when you think about your life, I don't want you to think about anybody else but yourself. Do I have faith in Jesus Christ? I want you to ask, in what way is that evidenced in my life? 
if Jesus were here among me bodily and I was responding to him or with me in my day in and day out events bodily, um, what would his response be to my response to him? You see, this is focusing us on this man so that we would say, oh, Lord, give me that sort of faith. Now, ultimately, the centurion is not summoning up something within him the way the word of faith healers are essentially tempting you to think you need to do. The greatness of this man's faith is that he sees the greatness of Jesus. The greatness of this man's faith is that he sees the greatness of the object of his faith. He sees the power of Jesus. He sees the authority of Jesus. He has the scales removed. He can see to some extent just who Jesus is. And so he trusts him for what he cannot do for himself. And Jesus is shocked and he marvels. Now, he's marveling in his humanity, that's for sure. God doesn't marvel. Nothing we do shocks God. God is infinite, self-contained, unchangeable. And yet the God-man in his humanity is taken back. He's surprised by what he sees in this man. And he heals his servant. Notice verse 10. Luke says, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. One of the other gospel writers tells us at the very moment when that man had sent the servants to say, don't come, just speak a word, that was the moment when they came back and realized that he had been made well. Jesus commanded, and the servant was healed. Um, Now, the centurion is not here. The centurion died. The centurion's precious servant is not here. That servant would go on to die. Um, Every man, woman, and child descended from Adam dies. You will die. Um, The reason we see the power and the authority of Jesus in this miracle is so that we would see that he is the one who marches all the way to the cross and takes all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our unworthiness on himself, who then rises in his divine and messianic power, who ascends to heaven, who promises to come again and raise the dead. All of this is just a microscopic foretaste of what we ought to be trusting him for and hoping in. You know, I sometimes ask myself the question, because every week we, we say one of the old um, Christian creeds or confessions here at New Covenant. I will sometimes, and sometimes I think about my own mother's grave, and I ask myself, do I really believe in the resurrection of the dead? Do I really believe that Jesus is going to raise everybody bodily? Yes, I do. Am I trusting him to raise me bodily? Yes, I am. Do I believe that with a voice, with a trumpet sound, when he comes again, he is going to raise everyone bodily? Yes, I do. I believe that he's the resurrection and the life. I believe that he, with a word, had power over sickness and health and life and death. 
Life is such a weird thing. 2017 was a weird year. Life is a weird thing. And it's short. It's very short. Um, Who knows what 2018 has. But I hope that 2018 will be a year that you will live as someone with great faith in Jesus Christ. Because that's the only thing that matters. You could build us a beautiful church building. Doesn't matter. I mean, we take it. But it doesn't make you worthy. But it would be compassionate. (laughs) But it doesn't make you commendable to Jesus. You can love people with great tenderness and be the most gentle person you can try to make yourself, and it doesn't make you acceptable to Jesus. Um, You have to turn to him in faith and repentance. You have to know that he is who he says he is. And you have to say, Lord, I know that you can do all that you have said that you can do. And even if 2018 is a hard year, or if this year is your last year, it won't matter. It will not matter. If you're in Christ by faith, you'll be raised on the last day. You will have eternal life. And you will know all the compassion and love and mercy and tenderness and power and authority of Jesus for all eternity. And you'll be with him. Just like the centurion is with him, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant to every man and woman and boy and girl in this room that we might have the same faith of the centurion. We pray that we would see the same Christ who he saw. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of every heart that you would make us to see him and to see him in all his messianic glory. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do for us um, what you did for that man, that you would show us your power and your authority and your wisdom and your grace and your compassion and your willingness to save those who trust you. We pray that this year ahead would be a year of us together as a congregation trusting you and exhibiting great faith together and calling on you for others. We pray, our God, that you would please begin that work in us even this day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.